Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Um, today, we have Professor Andrew Martin with us. He is a bioinformatician and computational biologist. He is a professor of bioinformatics and computational biology at uh, UCF. Um, he's also our first, first port of call when we need to learn more about canonical classes, how to generate synthetic antibody sequences, how to introduce mutations. Um, he, he specializes in antibody structure and function, uh, effects of mutations, predicting pathogenic mutations with the help of machine learning. Among many things he, among many amazing things he has done, one of those things I wanted to highlight is that um, he was a scientific programmer for the National Grid Company and Bradwell, I believe, nuclear power station too. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a lot to cover today. He is also an expert witness on multiple patent disputes. And uh, I know some of the stories and probably it will be an event of its own if we go there. Uh, he's advisor to cool in. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the right pronunciation, W-H-O-I-N-N. Yes, the in International Non-Proprietary Names Committee. It's good to know that there's a committee behind naming those <laughs> antibodies because yeah. <laughs> that there's a process behind those crazy looking uh, names. So it would be good to maybe learn a little bit more about that in the networking session. Sure. Uh, but what we want to talk mostly about today, the APSIS platform. And uh, with that, I want to just welcome Andrew. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So about Apsys, can you please tell us a little bit more about that platform? How did it all start? How did it evolve? Yeah. Okay. So um, the initial development actually was um, funded by uh, UCB Celtech or just, just Celtech as actually as it was at the time. Um, I had done some uh, expert witness work for them, and actually I knew uh, somebody at Celtech uh, quite well. Um, he got me involved in the expert witness work, and he was really just complaining that they had no system for storing antibody sequence data uh, and so on. So that this was back in about, what, 2004, I suppose, 2004, 2005. Um, and uh, so um, they funded development of what at the time was a fairly basic system for storing pre-numbered antibody sequence data, including some analyses of those data. It was funded on the basis that uh, we kept, or we as U in UCL kept the um, intellectual property on the software itself. And of course, they kept any intellectual property on any, anything that they developed using it. <laughs> and that's meant that we've uh, been able to go on and uh, uh, add more to the software and we make it freely available uh, to access over the web, but also then sell it uh, to companies to use in-house. So uh, the initial development was kind of three years by a, a postdoc uh, called Jacob Hurst. We've then had uh, various other people working on it. Um, including um, Craig Porter, Mark Dibley, and, and John Holliday. Uh, so some of them have been funded actually on relatively short grants. So uh, one year um, 
uh, what's called an HEIF uh, grants uh, via UCL itself. Another year on the BBSRC uh, follow-on grant for commercialization. That's that's allowed us to um, do some more kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, but also now it's mostly funded by um, sort of self-funding because of of uh, selling commercial licenses. So um, uh, the the public websites uh, the last last year I checked for was 2018 when we had over one and a half million visits to the public website from more than 10,000 unique visitors. Um, we now, uh, as I said, sell it to, to companies. Um, that's, uh, brought in about 325,000 pounds in 2019, 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite widely used now. And that, that allows us to pay, uh, kind of two part-time uh, postdoc developers to work on adding new features, which are often driven by, um, not, not just by the science that we're doing, but by the requests of, of companies, uh, and what they would like to see in the software. Uh, and in one case we had, um, had a company who, uh, actually specifically wanted something. They wanted it fairly quickly. So they paid for the development of, of that. Uh, at a kind of cost rate on the basis that it's now available uh, as part of the main system. All right. I know that there is already a lot of functionality available online. Yeah. Um, but maybe if you can briefly talk about the type of services included in Apsys and at what point people should consider buying their copy and what kind of sure. and they will get that. Okay, so um, I mean, the, the main thing that Abyssis provides is a database of uh, public sequences. So this is all stored in a relational database, um, and as a result of having that all in a in a database, um, it means that we can include various automated analyses. So uh, all the sequences are pre-numbered using um cabat numbering scheme chothia numbering scheme our own numbering scheme imgt and uh, aho scheme so all kind of five widely used schemes are in there um and then we um have uh, residue distributions at each position uh across species and split up by species which allows you then to look for things like unusual residues, uh, which of course may then be related to things like immunogenicity. So, so that's kind of the, the, the core functionality. Um, but you know, that then, uh, allows you to, um, do things in terms of humanization. It allows you to do things in terms of looking at features that may be unusual. It also has, um, extensive kind of, uh, analysis of, uh, post-translational modifications, uh, and, uh, you know, things like that, that may be, uh, related to, to liabilities for development. The, the public system allows you to, uh, upload your own sequences for analysis, 
in exactly the same way that the, the sequences that are part of the uh, database can be analyzed. It's not one off. It's not just one sequence at a time. You can upload a set of sequences, uh, but that information is kind of disposed of once you've, uh, once you finish your session. Um, if you have the commercial version, uh, then, uh, you can upload your sequences to an area within the database, um, so that you, you've got the, the, the data stored in a more persistent manner. I suppose one of the main reasons for, for buying an in-house version, uh, is that, uh, we deliberately, uh, use HTTP rather than HTTPS. So there's no encryption. Um, so if you're sending out your sequence data, uh, then it's, it's not going to be protected. Um, uh, and of course we, and anything that goes into queries that you send, uh, ends up being in kind of logs that, uh, that, that we, uh, will maintain. I mean, we don't deliberately share it with anybody else, but, uh, equally we, we don't say it's necessarily, um, secure. The public version is also tends to be, uh, kind of one version or two versions behind the version that, uh, that, that companies are using. There are a few things. I mean, I think at the moment, those, those things are largely, uh, aesthetic rather than major, major additions, but, uh, but yeah, there are major additions in the pipeline. Nice. Andrew, you were mentioning that there is a little bit difference in terms of versioning of the public and the in-house version of the software. Yeah. I was wondering uh, what's waiting for us in the next iterations. We have a number of things. I actually made, made, made a list of the version that's going out to, uh, to companies at the moment is a little bit ahead of, of, uh, what's on the web at the moment, but, but not sort of major, uh, differences, but the, I guess the, the main things that are not on the web-based version and either you know, in the current commercial version or the next commercial version, uh, are some improved, uh, reliability of numbering largely, uh, with respect to, um, kind of difficult sequences, um, and, uh, things like, uh, single chain FVs, um, that, uh, previously were just numbering the first, first bits that it found, um, improved handling of paired sequences in the interface. So, um, looking at heavy and light chains together. Um, we have a kind of library design module, uh, which, um, uh, is, is there for, um, for doing like phage display library design. Um, so that's, that has been, that, that, that was the thing that I mentioned that was all, asked for by one particular uh, purchaser who, who was using it anyway, but he wanted something, uh, simpler and more kind of integrated for doing that. Um, the two big, uh, extra things I guess are a triaging system. So when you do a search, uh, or you, um, you have a, a set of antibodies that you're interested in, um, at the, in the current system, basically you, you would get a, a list of those, um, they would 
come up as a, a as a colored sequence alignment and then you can just look at one of them the triaging system allows you to triage that big initial set based on uh things that at the moment uh post translational modifications and uh lengths of regions so you know the the majority of um Successful antibody-based drugs don't have terribly long CDRH3s, so you can uh, kind of uh, triage based on that. Uh, you can triage based on not wanting more than, say, two post-translational modification sites or, or, or whatever. Um, so that's one of the ma major uh, new things. The other n major new thing is a link to our Abimod software for antibody modeling. So uh, this is a, a, a fairly rapid modeling program. Um, its accuracy is generally uh, pretty good. It averages about one Angstrom RMS on C alphas. Uh, CDRH3 is certainly better than AlphaFold2, uh, which, um, I mean, AlphaFold2 is not particularly good for antibodies for various reasons. Uh, it's competitive with other... Um, specialist methods uh, and we've also recently developed some new software to uh, predict the quality of our CDRH3 models um, so it's so a student of mine uh, Lillian Denzler who's been working on that um, so Abimod is available um, as a standalone thing again it's available on the same sort of basis as Abacis that you can um, access it freely over the web uh, but you can also uh, buy it to have it in-house, or you will be able to very, very soon. Um, but also we have this link between the two, uh, which means that um, currently, uh, if there's a structure known for an antibody, uh, then uh, the PDB file is stored in the database and will be accessible. Uh, but if it isn't, that kind of structure tab on the interface is missing. What we have in the new version then with the uh, the Abimod link is that there is a button there that just says build me a model uh, and uh, it, it will uh, build a model of the antibody for you and then it will cache that so that you've uh, you've got it there uh, for future access <laughs> um, and the modeling takes uh, probably about uh, one and a half minutes uh, something like that so it, it's reasonably quick. The other thing that will kind of impact uh, commercial users potentially is that we're introducing restrictions on the amount of use that the public site has from email addresses that are not um, .edu or .ac.uk, uh, so clearly not academic sites. So there will still be free access but you won't be able to do lots and lots of searches uh, in, in a sort of relatively short period of time. It's good that, um, that maybe the distinction between the public and in-house version and what you get extra from there is, is super valuable. And also, I mean, this is not for profit for you, isn't it? All the money coming from there is then going back to developing new modules, new features. Not all of the money, but, but uh, um, because it's it's marketed via UCL business mm. so UCL business takes a share um, UCL itself takes a share 
the original developers get a, a small share, but, but yes, a, a, a large percentage of the money comes back into, uh, uh, to the development. Um, uh, and the, you know, one of the other things that we've done with commercial companies who have got licenses is that, um, if they have specific requests for, um, you know, additional features, then we will add those. Uh, but if they kind of want them in a hurry, uh, then we will do the development of those kind of at cost, but then on the basis that, that, that extra, uh, thing will be made available to everybody else. There are two things that you mentioned. One of them is the library design module. And the second is the CDR H3 prediction with one angstrom accuracy. That's I, I, no, I said antibody overall to one angstrom. CDR H3 is a lot more variable. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, CDR H3, it depends. Uh, I mean, our, our method is very competitive with the other methods that are around, but uh, you know, it, it's quick. Uh, it, it probably isn't going to be as good as, um, uh, things like deep antibody and deep H3, but there you're waiting for, uh, hours for an answer, um, rather than, uh, uh, getting a, a reasonable answer in a minute or so. Uh, and you know, the, what, what we've added there though, is a, a predictor of CDRH3 quality. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's basically a, uh, a machine learning predictor that takes the model that you've built and, uh, um, uh, assesses how likely it is to be right. Uh, and that's, uh, that really gives us a bit of kind of added value there. I think. I want to cover one more thing before we get to the questions. And that is, I know that you and a few others reviewed, uh, developability assessment and the tools that they are currently available. Um, but developability is not one single thing. And I think people also have a little bit different definitions for it. Yeah. What is your definition? What does it cover? And one final question, how close we are to develop some tools that might be on par with the best lab metrics out there in terms of quality and speed. So I think in, in, in terms of developability and using Abasis for that, um, uh, the things that we look for are, um, I guess fall into two main categories. Um, one is the, um, the stability and, uh, characteristics of the protein itself. And the other is the immunogenicity in terms of characteristics of the protein itself. One of the major things is, is looking for post-translational modification sites. We know from the, the sort of effective, um, antibodies that they tend to have, uh, shorter CDRH3s. We can look for things like extra cysteines, uh, flagging up that sort of thing is, is very, uh, straightforward. Um, but also we have, a uh, a measure which we call humanness, um, which, uh, is, is a bit difficult to describe quickly and without a, without a slide or two, but, uh, essentially it, it's a measure of how representative, uh, 
uh, an antibody is of the observed human repertoire. We've used that uh, quite successfully. We see that um, uh, antibodies known to fail in sort of phase one uh, clinical trials because of immunogenicity issues tend to have uh, a worse humanness score. Um, uh, interestingly, as, as a kind of example there, um, uh, adalimumab, uh, which, um, uh, you know, is, is the, the top selling drug, uh, in terms of revenue, um, 25, although nominally that's a fully human antibody, uh, more than 25% of patients develop an anti-antibody response against it. Um, uh, and that is linked to, to, uh, it, its effectiveness. So only about 4% of patients who have anti-antibodies against it have sustained remission, uh, compared with about 34, 35% of, of patients who, uh, don't have anti-antibodies. Um, and, you know, looking at our humanness score, the humanness score of that, although nominally it's fully human is worse than that of uh, something like trastuzumab, which is very well tolerated. We've looked at some other, uh, other antibodies, uh, and seen similar sorts of things. Uh, the other thing that kind of follows on from that, uh, in terms of, um, immunogenicity and developability, uh, is clusters of residues because we have this mapping uh, you know, ability to build models very quickly and easily. And actually, even without actually having models, we know the approximate distances that things are. We can look for unusual residues from our database uh, and indeed things like hydro hydrophobic residues uh, and look to see if they cluster on the surface. So if we get clusters of hydrophobic residues, um, you know, that's, that can be uh, related to aggregation uh, and clusters of uh, unusual residues, again, uh, likely to be linked to immunogenicity. Adalimumab actually has a cluster uh, spread across the light and heavy chains, but they come together in three dimensions uh, of, uh, unusual residues. So that may be one of the reasons why, it, why it generates an immune response. It's, it's always very difficult to say in the, these cases, because there are so many other factors that come into play. Um, but, uh, you know, in general, it's something that's probably worth avoiding. So what we're doing at the moment is developing a, a kind of new, uh, pipeline specifically for, uh, triaging, uh, in terms of developability, this is kind of separate from Abacis itself, but the idea is that it will, uh, enable people who are generating lots and lots of sequences. So we spoke to one company who were generating a million sequences a week after cleanup. So if we can triage those, uh, first of all, uh, on the basis of, um, uh, kind of typical characteristics of drugs. And, and this is something that, that Charlotte Dean's group in Oxford has also looked at. Um, but then, you know, organizing this triaging system so that we do the quick things first and the slower things, uh, later on, um, we can, uh, try to produce something that's, um, 
able to, to, to look at those sorts of characteristics, triage on those basis, bases, and then um, uh, put the, the sort of much smaller set into abysses so that you can then look at it in more detail. This is, this is kind of the idea that we're, we're sort of working with. Especially when you have so many choices to select from. Uh, looking for some of the screening first and filtering it down as much as you can and look for the liabilities. It's a great idea. And I think with more machine learning companies making more generative models and then pushing through millions of sequences, that's even more valuable. Absolutely, yes. I mean, what what I didn't mention there actually is that, that we are also using machine learning as part of that, that sort of pipeline. We've only recently started on on the work on this and you know, the person who's been uh, developing that is just sort of doing some very kind of basic experiments at the moment uh, with uh, kind of you know, being able to separate mouse and human sequences uh, purely by a, a simple kind of descriptor of the proteins, uh, kind of averaged properties across the whole protein sequences. And then the idea would be rather than such an obvious distinction, starting to move to, to things that might be immunogenic and not immunogenic. Um, and we've also worked on using um, machine learning for uh, predicting thermostability. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's something that we intend to integrate into this sort of pipeline as well. Okay. I think we will keep you uh, on the line for a long time to answer all of those stuff and get a little bit maybe more under the hood of what that really means and, you know, what's the breadth and the depth of those tools. But for today, I think we covered quite a bit. I see that there are a few questions out there and... Um, don't know if you have an answer for this one, uh, Andrew, but it's from Peter Pack, and this might be a question for many. What are the typical costs for an honest biotech company? I think this is for Epsis and maybe Edmont. If you want uh, an in-house version, it depends uh, on the uh, the license um, uh, that you want, uh, and you'd have to uh, speak to... Uh, Mark Swindells, who who looks after uh, all that sort of thing, but roughly speaking, we're talking about a license of ten thousand a year um, for uh, I think it's three seats uh, up to about twenty five thousand a year for uh, a site license. Um, Abimod, I am not sure that we have a price point yet because that hasn't. Um, been kind of uh, formally released as yet, but it will be in the next couple of months. Okay. And if they want to learn more about this, who should they contact? So uh, Mark Swindells at Chemogenomics. So so uh, Chemogenomics um, is, is Mark's company. Um, they look after the um, the marketing of Abasis on behalf of uh, of UCL business, uh, but if you go to the uh, the Abasis website, which is um, uh, abasis.org, uh, there is a link at the bottom of the the main page to the uh, uh, to to Mark and Chemogenomics. Perfect. Um, another question. This is from Vinod Kral of Takeda, senior scientist. Well, I'll bring it up to the stage and read quickly. 
Is in silico immunogenicity predictions for T cell and B cell binding in the horizon? And second question, are there any plans to include VHH database and other non-antibody scaffolds, darken, etc.? Okay, so um at the, right, so so B cell immunogenicity and B cell um uh interactions um is something that we have worked on. The, the simple answer is that um, prediction of uh, uh, what amounts to uh, antibody binding sites, um, uh, B-cell epitope prediction, uh, is really poor. So even the, the, the people who um, say that it works well, um, when you actually analyze what they're, they, they're doing, they're often taking the whole sequence of a protein and they're predicting across that. Um, so what they're really doing reasonably well is predicting what's on the surface. Uh, if you evaluate it in a different way, based on just let's look at the surface residues and see how well uh, they can find the B cell epitopes uh, from that, they do as badly as everybody else does. Uh, so although we have a, a method for doing it, which is again, competitive with what everybody else is doing, I'm not altogether convinced of the value of it. On the other hand, T-cell epitope prediction is, is much, much better. Um, that is not uh, something that we have an immediate plan to put in, but it is certainly on the list of things that we want to include because it is something that a number of people have asked about. Uh, in lieu of the B-cell uh, epitope prediction, I would say the best thing to use is looking at the clustering of these these unusual residues on the surface instead. Um, second question, uh, VHHs. Uh, we do have uh, VHHs in the, 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 the database in uh, fairly small numbers. Um, if you have the standalone version and you have a VHH, data set, uh, then um, you could upload those uh, as a kind of separate set, and then you can make comparisons against those. Uh, at the moment, no plans for non-antibody scaffolds such as DARPINs, um, but it wouldn't be terribly difficult to, um, uh, to, to modify the system with that in mind, providing uh, there is a, at least one agreed uh, standardized numbering system for, for DARPINs. Um, we're actually looking at um, T-cell receptors at the moment and moving a lot of our technology over to uh, working with T-cell receptors because they, um, uh, you know, they're starting to become important as drugs as well. This is a bit more technical. Um, you mentioned residue distributions. Is it, uh, is it possible to calculate the substitution matrix from this data or are you planning to add it to the ARCES? Right. So, uh, that's not actually something we've thought about. Yes, of course it would be, it would be possible. Uh, so basically having, uh, a position specific substitution matrix um is something that could be done uh fairly straightforwardly what we do have is kind of a 
a visualization of that. So um, there's what's described as the the humanized page. It's not really, it's not in terms of doing humanization necessarily, but it's looking for um, for features of a sequence which are not typical of a human antibody. Um, so um, what we do then is um, uh, give you a, a kind of N by 20 uh, matrix um, done as a kind of uh, heat map, basically. Um, so you've got your sequence plotted along the top, and then you've got uh, the um, uh, residue distributions coming down in columns. Uh, and uh, you can set a threshold for what you uh, regard as common and what you regard as uncommon and then ones in between. Um, and uh, so you can look at your sequence colored on that basis and uh, identify residues that are unusual in that respect and see what would be a, a sensible substitution to put in at that, that point. But yeah, that's an interesting idea, uh, generating a substitution matrix, uh, and we could do that quite straightforwardly. Okay. That question was from Cyberland. Uh, he's a senior machine learning engineer at Antiverse, and he might have more ideas. So Cyberland, okay. you to go find Andrew and ask some more questions. We have two more questions, or maybe three. So one of them is from Andrew Moyes. He's a senior machine learning engineer at Antiverse. Uh, I'll bring to the stage. With respect to the mods, is the accuracy in comparison to crystal structures? I think you kind of answered that one. And do you see much value in modeling the loop dynamics or can we design good antibodies just by looking at the crystal structure? Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, Abimod uh, averages about one Angstrom RMSD on C alphas. If you look at two crystal structures of the same protein solved by different groups, you're typically thinking about maybe 0 0.6, 0 0.7 Angstrom's RMSD. So, you know, it, it, it's pretty good. Uh, you get largely like a normal distribution and then a long tail falling off. Um, CDRH3 is a much kind of flatter distribution um, with, uh, you know, and it's very, very reliant on the length of the CDR. Uh, but if you put them all together, it's kind of um, going up to maybe six, seven Angstroms. Uh, but um, that's very much typical of what other people are doing as well. Um, so loop dynamics. Um, this is a, a very common uh, misconception, I think, that um, antibody loops are flexible. Uh, We've done actually very recently repeated some analysis we did some years ago um, to see if that's true, because now obviously there are, you know, lots of uh, structures, um, lots of structures bound and unbound, uh, lots of cases where we have uh, the same antibody and multiple structures. So it's something that you can actually start to look at. And in general, there are always exceptions, of course, but in general, antibody loops don't move very much. Uh, and even, even CDRH3 uh, in general doesn't, it doesn't show very much flexibility. Of course, we get sidechain movements, but uh, if you think about it from a, a thermodynamic point of view, you don't want loops to move. You know, if, if, if the unbound uh, conformation 
is different from the bound conformation, then you've got to stress the loop away from where it naturally wants to be on binding. So you're wasting some of that uh, interaction energy in stressing the loop. If instead you can have a proper kind of lock and key fit, then you're going to uh, have um, all else being equal, uh, higher affinity. Um, and, and, you know, that's seen also in VHVL interactions that, uh, uh, you know, a stronger interface between VH and VL seems to be linked to uh, a higher affinity. So, um, so I, th I think the, so uh, just, just going back here, that we, we see this both when we look at, um, unbound structures versus unbound structures. Uh, we see this with bound versus bound. We see this with bound versus unbound. So in, in, in all cases, there is not very much flexibility usually. Of course, as I said, there are a few exceptions. Um, so I think, uh, having a major kind of concern over, um, antibody loop dynamics is, uh, somewhat, uh, misplaced. Yeah. Um, so in general, I think working from crystal structures is, is good enough most of the time. At least for the antibody side of things. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, we would expect the same to apply to the, um, uh, the antigen side as well, that, uh, we don't want to stress things away from their natural conformation for the, for the same reason. Um, but, uh, obviously if you've got a flexible loop, you may well be freezing it out, uh, in a particular conformation, which is also unfavorable because you're going to lose entropy by doing that. Uh, but, um, I guess that that's a more likely scenario that, uh, that we, we would be, uh, doing that with a, uh, a flexible antigen loop. The reason that we've, uh, looked at this again properly now, so I, we looked at it some years ago and it was a kind of an M MSC project student, uh, looked at it again now because, um, we, I've got a new PhD student in the group who is, um, uh, looking at using, um, deep learning techniques for, uh, essentially for docking. And this was something that was really worrying him about how flexible the loops were. And I said, I really don't think you need to worry about it, but, uh, he wanted to prove this to himself. So he's done the analysis properly. Uh, and we do hope to, to actually, to get that published. Yeah. Um, so before we move on to networking, first of all, thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us today. Um, is there anything else that you think the audience can contribute towards your future projects? Um, that might be, you know, joining the lab, maybe you have some openings or it might be, you know, the, the purchasing of the software or somehow sponsoring or contributing to it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, money is always good. So, um, uh, you know, anybody who is interested in in buying the software to have it in house that will directly feed into, into further development. Um, we're always interested in, uh, good developers. Uh, we don't necessarily have, uh, definitive posts for people, but the two developers that we have actually working on the software itself, uh, they're both kind of part-time contractors, um, uh, probably both work maybe 
three to four days a week. Um, uh, another thing that um, we have developed recently is a, uh, a system called Abbey Draw, uh, which uh, is basically um, an annotation language for annotating large, complex, uh, bi-specific, multi-specific uh, structures. Um, and a, a kind of a thing a bit like smile strings that are used for small molecules for describing uh, antibodies specifically. So there is a language called Helm, uh, which has been developed for biologics in general, but it's rather overcomplicated as a result of that. And there are some things that you want to do with antibodies that it's not very good at. Uh, this is specifically for antibodies, and it comes with a, a drawing package, um, which uh, allows you to render uh, molecules, uh, and also draw them and generate the language. So we're kind of, um, uh, just about finishing that at the moment. And would be, if anybody's interested in being a kind of beta tester for that, uh, that would be quite useful. And I guess the last thing that we're always after is data. Um, you know, particularly if you've got data about antibody sequences that you're not interested in anymore uh because um of immunogenicity or poor developability profiles uh such as aggregation or low thermal stability or whatever um then you know the more data we can get on those sorts of things particularly for machine learning uh development uh the, the better really um so if if anybody has any data that they would be willing to share we would be uh uh, very grateful for that. That's perfect. Um, so with that, we will move on to the networking session. I would like to thank you, Andrew and Martin, one more time for joining us today. Thank you.